This episode is brought to you by Heidi. Imagine kicking back while a HIPAA compliant AI scribe writes your soap notes for free. Yes, you heard us right. Heidi is free. I'm Dr. Tom, Heidi's CEO and founder, and we started Heidi to stop clinicians wasting their life on clinical documentation. Heidi transforms your consult babble into crisp, clear soap notes, personalizing itself with every edit. One day, Heidi will be your AI resident, looking through research, explaining plans, and doing anything you don't want to. If you currently pay for an AI scribe in your practice, you should swap to Heidi. We'll even credit you for anything you've already paid. Dive into the description for the link and make your practice the envy of every stethoscope in town. Sign up and watch Heidi work its magic all for free because you've got better things to do. When we give patients a new diagnosis or recommend a workup or treatment plan, they aren't always on board and sometimes they need to be persuaded. So today, I interviewed the author of The Rules of Persuasion to help us do that better. Check it out. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. Welcome back to the podcast. On today's episode, we have Carlos Alvarenga. He's an independent researcher and writer, and his new book, The Rules of Persuasion, How the World's Greatest Communicators Convince, Inspire, Lead, and Sometimes Deceive, which was published in August of 2023. Prior to writing full-time, he worked first as a journalist and then as a management consultant. He's currently a PhD student in English at the University of Maryland, where his research focuses on the rhetoric of totalitarian regimes, timely considering the current political landscape in the U.S. He holds a BA in Humanities and Classical Greek from Hamden Sydney College and completed his post-bac program in Classics at my alma mater, University of Pennsylvania. He resides in Bethesda, Maryland, with most important part of his bio here with his wife, a physician researcher at the NIH, and he's the father of two sons. I have to tell you my favorite part of the book, or parts of the book rather, is the juxtaposition of persuasion used in different arenas. For instance, he cites the classics, the Bible, Hemingway, and then I think maybe even all in the same chapter, Goodfellas, Star Wars, and Ratatouille. It's not only a really interesting read, but it's things like that keep you engaged and keep it relevant the, the whole time. So, Carlos Alvarenga, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Brad. It's a pleasure to be here with you and with your audience. You wrote that the function of all communication is to persuade, not just certain communication, but all communication. And sometimes I grapple with the role that physicians ha- have with their patients Like, are we supposed to be presenting information in an unbiased way and just let them decide or to try and try and persuade them to take a certain action that we think is most consistent with their healthcare goals? But if you're saying all communication is persuasion, it's not really a decision, right? Like we're not thinking about whether or not we should do this or not, because ultimately, whether we like it or not, communication is persuasion. And and I say almost all, because there are a few examples here and there. But generally speaking, when we interact with someone, we're almost always trying to get them to either believe something or agree to something. And to say that I'm completely unbiased, it would require a kind of indifference to the outcome, right? In the sense that I don't really care which way it goes. I think it's the nature of medicine to care. It's in the nature of medicine to want the patient to make the right choice. And that's the, that is again, in a structural term, that is the nature of physicians to make a body 
better and to heal a patient. So I would imagine that even if you think you're not aware of that, there probably is some sense of there is, if not a right and a wrong, a better and a less better option. And so at that point, then I think own it. Like if it's going to happen passively, then just engage with that fact and recognize that it is part of what we do. I I think so. I think it is, again, in classical terms, you would say it is in the nature of being a physician to heal a patient, just the way it is a musician to play music, right? Or an athlete to compete in athletics. It, it is what the role is in societal terms. Excellent point. Excellent point. So you discuss really early on in the book what the framework for persuasion is. So walk us through what the framework is. I'll explain that in two parts, what Aristotle sets out as the foundation and then what I contribute and why I wrote the book to Aristotle's foundation. So what he says is in a remarkable book called The Rhetoric. And The Rhetoric book is a book which is interesting because it wasn't meant to be read by us. We don't really know exactly what it's for, but most likely it was either private teaching notes because he taught, he created the academy, or it was a, a, a handbook for students. But it he probably never imagined that we would be reading it. So it isn't written as a book that you read. And there's a strange thing about Aristotle, which scholars have noted this, the more obvious something is, the less he explains it. And persuasion falls into that category. He, he, Aristotle wouldn't waste five pages on this, why this guy is blue. It's just blue. So he says, of all the ways to persuade someone, they can be grouped into three, what I call modes in the book. The character of the speaker, who or what is speaking to me? person, school, institution, hospital, government, right? The arguments presented, logic, proof, statistics, authorities, right? Evidence, witnesses, and then the emotion that the audience feels as they listen to the speaker or receive the message. And this has been here for 23, 2400 years. You've heard it often described as ethos, pathos, logos. You read that in many articles. The reason I wrote my book is that I had a question and that was, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by character? What do you mean by argument? What do you mean by emotion? And exactly what is persuasion? And so I became consumed with this question. And what I say in my book and the metaphor I, I, I follow in the book is, if we think about the character of a, of a communicator, we can, for the sake of this exercise, divide it into seven elements, I call them. So the origin, history, style, language, status, right? The same thing with argument. There's logic. There's There are authorities and so on and so forth. And then I say there are seven kinds of emotion, positive, negative, exhortative, inspirational, mystical. What I say is if we take these 21 things, we can think of them as a kind of periodic table. Okay. So this is what I call the periodic table of persuasion. All messages are built from some combination of these 21 elements. So the best way to think of it, it is chemistry with words, right? Great communicators make a formula, which your audience will appreciate, right? Deliver the formula. If the chemistry is good, persuasion is affected. Okay. So I think we're going to have to use the Pareto's principle here, where you need to understand 20% of it to get 80% of it, especially when we're talking about something specific like, you know, doctor to patient communications, because I don't think we're going to be able to master all 21, but there are probably a small number of combinations that apply to us. And and we'll get we'll get to that. We'll get to that later on, I think. Hey, by the way, the what we find is that most formulations are ancient. We we rarely find someone who comes with something new. For example, 
if your father or mother were here and could see the way you behave, you know, act as if they were watching you. This is as old as time. This idea of your ancestors, the gods, right? Some unseen power or, or, or authority is watching your behavior. Uh, so what, what, what you find is that really these formulations for the most part are A, they're ancient. And also, yes, you're right. All 21 elements uh, are not going to be masked by one person, but you don't have to. And most of us have a few that we're actually sort of natively good at. And so as I explained the book, it, most of the time we don't persuade, not because we can't, but because we don't understand that the, there are more elements on the shelf that I could pull from. And if a little bit of this added to the mix would just make it work a lot better than what I'm using today. It's like when you're cooking, you know, all people often leave out acidity. All you need to do to add to your repertoire is a little bit of acidity and boom, your dishes are going to be a whole lot better. There you go. All right. So we're going to add a little bit of acidity to our persuasion. So you talk about, you know, you talk about Aristotle's three principles of persuasion, and then you've got, you've subdivided all of those. Or have there been any other great updates in persuasion in the last 2,300 years? I haven't read every book on persuasion, so my logic teacher would say you can't answer this question with anything other than a qualified statement. I'd say I haven't found them if there are. I haven't crossed them. And it's one other reason why I wrote this book is that I bought books from, about persuasion to use in my coaching practice, and they really weren't about persuasion. They were about psychology or manipulation or almost sort of uh, automatic responses to certain things. And I, I kept going back to Aristotle over and over again as the definitive statement about persuasion and communication. Now, if we look at rhetoric, the evolution of what we started as persuasion today in the academic sense, there's a lot of fantastic work. That's just the things that I study at Maryland, right? And I'd say that is more of a specialist topic. For example, the rhetoric of violence or totalitarian regimes. I'd say the the application of some of these ideas certainly has evolved, but I think that ultimately the foundation of what persuasion is in human interaction, it's what Aristotle found, and it's still correct. I guess it's like arithmetic hasn't been updated in thousands of years, so it persuasion, I guess, it's just how the how our brains work. So the then, other thing, I, yeah, just another point there is that people ask about how does my book relate to other books on persuasion and influence. And I say, you know, we had medicine long before we had chemistry. These books are medicine. I think of my book as chemistry. It's a chemistry textbook for language. So it is why that book about selling is a great book about selling or why that book about negotiation is good. We knew that this plant cures a headache before we knew why, trying to give people the why. Interesting. Okay. So then what would be a good start for physicians, right? Rather than the three principles all subdivided into seven, where do we where do we even begin? I think you begin by understanding that there are three modes. Uh, when I start coaching, but I, I found every single time, and I've coached dozens of people, it goes something like this. We have these three dials, imagine in, in a message, right? Character from zero to ten, like spinal tap or eleven if you're a spinal tap fan, right? Argument and then emotion. Almost everyone I work with, character is at zero or one, maybe a two. Emotion is almost always a zero, right? which means that like a ship with three masts and only one sail, that sail is pretty tattered, right? It's been, it's doing all the work. 
And my advice is, listen, you've got two sales that are furled up. Why not unfurl the sale? You're going to go a lot faster. You're going to put less strain on the second one and everything's going to work a lot better. So mostly it's just, hey, what is available to you, right? What is available to you that you could put into the formulation that's right at hand and almost always it's just a little bit of change and suddenly things work a lot better. So it's about not a wholesale change of becoming some kind of PhD in persuasion. It's simply just start by knowing that there are these three dials and let's put dial one and dial two off of zero and see what the effect is. And it's almost always a positive effect. Well, so let's talk about character, right? Because during a physician-patient interaction, right, there might be certain assumptions about our character, and that's why they came to see us. Now, there might not be, right? It might be the emergency department where you don't choose your physician, it's just whoever's available next. Also, there might be something that the patient assumes about your character because you're in that role. So how can we leverage character more to our advantage? So let's talk about three of the seven character elements quickly. So one is categories. So that those are the things that for the most part you choose. So you went to UPenn, you're now in the category of UPenn alumni. You chose to become a doctor, you're now in the category of men who become doctors, right? And so on. Associations are connections the audience makes about us. So we're almost always not in control of those. So just understanding that a person walks into a room who seems hurried, or nervous or preoccupied, the audience brain begins to move quickly. This person doesn't care about me. I'm just one in a production line of patients. And these conclusions are being spun before you, while you're still looking at the chart, before you've even looked at the patient. The patient has made 75 associations, maybe because of a bad experience five years ago. And before you've said a word, you're now in a negative position. You're, you have been, they are predisposed not to believe you and you think the conversation hasn't started yet. It started the moment they heard you walking down the hallway or heard the door begin to move. Or spent 45 minutes in your waiting room. 45 minutes thinking about who you are. You gave them plenty of time. By the way, it's another thing too. It's your choice. You, The more time you give them from the moment they get into that gown and you walk in the door, the more time they have to look around the office, to categorize you to make associations. So this idea that the conversation begins when you start to speak, in my sense, I think it's wrong. It started the moment they sat down and began to think about who you are and who they're about to hear from. The other thing is status. So I, I mentioned that in status is the power of this communicator relative to the audience, right? And status is interesting because status works bi-directionally. What does that mean? It works by affirmation. So I'm the boss, do what I tell you, or I'm the boss and I've done these wonderful things. But it also works by negation. So Undercover Boss, the TV show, a boss stops being the boss, right? So it's by negating status that you gain persuasive effect. Same thing the Pope does when he washes the pilgrim's feet. So you have this choice of whether I'm, am I going to affirm my status, which is high relative to a patient, or am I going to negate it in some way? I think that's a subtle question to ask yourself in this moment, in this room with this patient, which is better, affirming status or reducing it in some way. And I would imagine for some people it's one, for some it's another, but that tends to be not the case. It tends to be that most doctors will affirm status as a default state, which may not be the right answer from a persuasion standpoint. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, you can't do that when you first walk in a room. You need to fill out the interaction a bit first. 
Mm-hmm. All right. And then for the two, right? You may have 60 seconds. So what happens in those 60 seconds before the consult begins or the ther- you know, the therapeutic or the clinical moment begins can determine the entire outcome, right? In, in that short span of time. And if you're ever wondering, you know, if your visit has gotten off to the wrong foot or you want to prevent it from getting off to the wrong foot, um, listen to a lot of my other episodes because we talk about this. We talk about this stuff a lot, um, making sure that you are engaging with the patient and respecting their time and demonstrating that you care about them and that they're the only one in the room. This is what we talk about a lot on this show. I was really hoping that you could help us be more formulaic about it. And you're really not giving me those answers. Again, we go back to chemistry. Chemistry creates all kinds of formulas. So which formula are you looking for becomes the question, right? And as we know, chemistry creates medicine and it also creates poison. And so it's a moral. The, the issue is the formula for... Which may also just be a different dose of the same thing. Exactly, right? And great communicators are very skilled at saying it's 5% solution today, 20% tomorrow, 30% the next day because of the audience that I'm former. The issue is that once you start to think about this, and, and doctors are very smart people, so usually once you show them this, then they suddenly go, okay, I see it now, and I'm going to begin to regulate the message. With a little bit of practice, it becomes second nature. So then are there any traps to avoid? I mean, you just mentioned one, which was just over the overuse of leveraging authority and position, right? But are there any other tra- traps that we should avoid when we're attempting to persuade? I think that there are two. One is, Aristotle says that of the three modes, the, the most important is character. Who is talking to us? And for character to be effective, it must satisfy three conditions. One, the person knows what he or she is speaking about. So they're informed. They're experts. They they know what their subject matter. Two, they speak with good intention. And three, they mean us well. Sounds obvious, but you'd be surprised how many people don't tick that last box, right? They mean us at a very human level. They're smart. They know what they do. They went to the best schools, right? They're trying to do a good job, but do they mean me well, me person, the person in front of them? Are they here for my best interest? And I think people assume that that's true, but it isn't. And for character to work, all three lights must be green, according to Aristotle. The other one is that they, and I think this might be especially true of physicians, they devalue emotion. They don't understand or appreciate the power that the emotion has is a persuasive effect. And in fact, getting ready with today's show, I was doing some research, came across a paper that was written by a team from Baylor and Penn Medicine. And they had five recommendations for what they call uh, beneficent persuasion. Of the five, three are emotion and two are argument. Basically saying, think about the emotional impact. And what I found is that people think that when you say emotion, you mean tears flowing and <laughs> it's not. Sometimes it's a very small thing, right? A very small emotion is concentrated, I would say, you know, just to extend the metaphor. A little drop can go a long way. So I'd say, yeah, think about, right? What does this patient believe every word that comes out of your mouth is for their personal goodness, their gain, their well being? And then, if they get emotional or if you have some emotional component to this message, don't be afraid to share it. It's a very powerful thing with human beings. And I find that a lot of very technical people discount that and dismiss it. And I think that's a mistake. To get the most out of your career as a physician, you need an employment contract that supports you. 
Unfortunately, most contracts do not initially include everything you need to be successful. Employers draft contracts with their best interests in mind, but the terms that benefit your employer are rarely as valuable to you. Before signing an employment contract, you should always make sure your salary, bonuses, paid time off, and other terms are fair. Resolve is the one and only place you can get live salary data, so you know exactly what's happening in your specialty at all times. The best part of the data is that it's verified from real physician contracts. With access to data on what physicians like you are earning, you know when you're being underpaid and can confidently ask for what you deserve. In addition to providing data, they're the number one firm specializing in physician employment contracts. They work with every specialty nationwide. At Resolve, you get connected with an experienced attorney who will work with you one-on-one -on -one to ensure you sign with confidence. Your attorney will take your priorities into account, address concerns, make suggestions, and help you strategize for any negotiation. They can even negotiate with an employer on your behalf. So whether you're a seasoned attending or just finished training, Resolve is here to support you in every step of the way. Visit resolve.com to learn more and discover how to sign your ideal employment contract. Resolve, your trusted partner for physician contract review, negotiations, and salary data. So that makes me think of some things that I've learned from prior episodes. One, we had this great guest a while ago, Oscar Tromboli. He talks about the power of listening. And one of the things that he dropped during the episode was, don't just listen for facts, listen for emotion. And I think this ties in really well to them believing us if we care about them, as you said, as people and not just their disease state. And so if you listen for emotion and then you can acknowledge what they're going through, then they're more likely to believe whatever it is you say, because then they understand you recognize that there is a whole person here, not just the, a disease or problem that needs to be fixed. There's a wonderful little book I recommend to everybody. I have a chapter in the book about listening. And it's the, the chapter is based on a book by uh, Dr. Salman Akhtar, who's a psychiatrist in Philadelphia. And it's called, the book is, it's a little handbook for how to listen to patients. And he talks about, I think it's, there are various ways of, of listening to someone. But my favorite is what I think he calls empath, empathetic listening, which is you're not trying to critique what the person is saying. You're not trying to find inconsistencies. Your only job as you listen is to have that person believe that you feel what they're feeling or at least can understand it, right? And he says, we, as clinicians, we tend to fall into the first kind, which is analytic listening, where I'm trying to find what's wrong and you made a mistake three arguments ago. He says, no, 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 no. For this kind, this particular patient just wants their emotions to be acknowledged, right? And I recommend book to anybody who works with individuals because as you think about, I would ask the question, how many different ways do you listen? Can you listen? And which is the right one for this moment? And if you can't answer the question, then I think you're missing a critical skill set if you deal with people on a daily basis. But it can be so tempting. When a patient's, well, my symptoms have been going on for three weeks. I went to urgent care really two days in and I was started on antibiotics and I just finished antibiotics yesterday. And you look in the chart and they had a 10 day course of antibiotics. You're like, well, that math doesn't work out. There's no reason to call out <laughs> the patient because it's not going to read as tempting as it might be to be like, you, listen, you made a mistake because everybody likes to be right. And as their doctor, but don't do it. Suppress that. Well, the, the, one of the underappreciated, I think, 
demands of medicine is patient in that ability to say, okay, we're going to have to start this all over again. And yet that is an absolute, it's like being a teacher, right? It's what's absolutely vital aspects of the job, right? Everybody right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So your wife is a physician, as we talked about before the show, she's a researcher at the NIH. She's a neuroradiologist. So, you know, I was hoping to find out, you know, what she's learned and applied to her patients, but what you told me is it's more how, what she's applied to managing her team. Now, as physicians, we're also team leaders, right? We have people that work for us and under us, trainees and assistants and uh, advanced practice providers. So, you know, as a team leader, what has she learned about persuasion? When I asked her the question you emailed, she said the, the biggest thing was the use of one of the elements of character, which is called history. So what does someone know about our past? And we often assume that they know a lot, way more than they usually do. And she said, I I would often say to the team, do A or do B. And I assume you're going to do it because I run the, I'm the leader of the team, right? I run the lab. So I'm boss, right? And she said, what I learned after reading the book was that I, a little bit of history where I explained to them, I was a student. I went through my residency, my training, all those things. It goes a long way. And getting someone to believe that this is the right thing to do, not just because the boss said it, but because there is there was a moment where she learned what she's trying to show me. And she's actually doing it again for my benefit. Shortcut the process. It took me a year to do this or learn something. You can learn it in a couple of months. Why would you waste a year like I did? Right. And that's beautiful because it reverses status. It uses character. And it's a very nice, easy formulation that's very effective. Uh, and she said, for most of my career, I just told them, no, do whatever I told you to do. And that's it. And so that was a big change. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. But there's also some stuff I want to, I want the audience to, to learn and myself to learn about persuasion for things that really come up frequently. And clearly with the pandemic, a big one was vaccine hesitancy, right? Now, you, in the book, you talk about Nike and how universal just do it is, right? Like it really makes you think about yourself and your own challenges to overcome. And you can relate to these other athletes that just, you know, you need to endure and just suck it up and just do it. Can I just apply that to people who don't want to get vaccinated and just say, just do it? I think it depends on the character. I was joking. I didn't expect you to be like, yeah, Brad, that works. No, yeah, but it's, yes, you can. Because if you think about the thing that you heard a lot of time during the pandemic was ask your healthcare provider, ask your doctor. This is a, re- this is a recurring refrain. Why would they say that? It's because if you have that trust relationship, if you believe, again, the three green lights of character are on and that person says, get vaccinated and you know who's speaking to you. That's probably the single most important thing you can say to someone who's afraid and acknowledge a fear, for example, instead of saying, it's a city that you want to get vaccinated. I might be afraid for legitimate reasons. And so that, again, acknowledge emotion and then use the, not just status, right? But the character of who you are, which is more than just your status. I think that's the most, and it's been shown to be the most powerful formulation for getting a parent to vaccine a child or for someone to vaccine themselves. It is the character of the physician as it's understood by the patient. I mean, how could you push that a little further? Meaning like, I would think you would need to say something like, well, listen, I was nervous about it. So now they can relate to you. I was nervous about it, but I decided that it was the right thing for me to get as well. I had similar reservations to you or I totally understand where you're coming from. You're nervous. You're not sure what the right thing to do is. 
for your kid, but I got my children vaccinated. Think about how powerful that statement is, right? Which is to say that you don't know this about my history, but I began this with many dissimilar fears. I was worried about my children. That's an emotional appeal. And ultimately, we made the choice. We think it's the best thing to do. That's a much different conversation from here's a chart, right, with uh, how the distribution is of people who are vaccinated and not vaccinated. And people cannot follow argument anyway, as I say, uh, at least most people can't. And the first conversation about who you are is way more powerful. And I think it's an interesting question for all professionals. You say, how much does that person know about me? Not what I think they know about me, but what do they really know about who I am? And if they don't know very much, then again, that tremendous storehouse of persuasive power is just going to waste. Is there anything else that we can leverage in those conversations rather than just what we just said? Yeah, I think when you use argument, and I make this case that the, the and, and I think this is especially true of people who are very technical engineers, right? Business people, scientists, physicians, the more logic and facts and argument persuade you, the farther away you are from persuading the average person, because they are not persuaded by those things. They can't follow them. To follow a high level argument, and I try to follow some of my wife's papers and presentations after two or three minutes, I'm lost because I don't have the training that you have to follow a hardcore medical presentation at a conference for 15 minutes, right? And they're all short. So if you understand that this person will not be able to follow that very long, then intersperse that. So what I, what does that mean? It means that break up the logic and argument and facts with other things, with narrative, with a personal reflection, with a question about their state. Are you following what I'm saying? Are you still feel comfortable? So you're still delivering the same amount of clinical or scientific information, but you're doing it in doses that a person can absorb instead of saying, okay, here's a three minute speech about what this is the way you're to do. And the person was lost after 45 seconds, which is what typically happens. So sometimes just breaking that up, making sure that you've got, you know, we talk about, you know, acknowledging consent. What about acknowledging understanding and how long is that window? Is it 15 seconds? Is it 30 seconds? It's almost always much shorter than you think. In, in most technical settings, it's much shorter than people think. They overestimate the processing ability of a non-technical person, right? No matter, and that's nothing to do with IQ, right? They can be very, very smart. The human brain is, I always say, it's a big warehouse with a very small door. <laughs> you hold a lot, but you're not getting anything in or out in a hurry. So just ex thinking that through can radically change. I've seen it happen with people, how they approach a conversation. And suddenly you see, wow, for the first time, they've understood what I said and they're going to do what I told them. And all they did was change the sequencing a little bit. I think for me, often it's, who am I speaking for right now? Like I can look at the patient and see that they've zoned out. And I know I really want to get all this stuff off of my chest and I feel like it needs to be said. But at this point, I'm talking for me, not for them. And this is not the me show. This is the them show. So they're the star, not me. So, all right, that's when it's time to break it up with some of those, you know, appeal to emotion or narrative or something that's going to be a little more engaging than just fact, 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 fact. And back to that, those three green lights, right? The first one, it should be automatic, I'm sure, for the audience, which is, are they, do they know what they talk, what they're talking about? But then do they speak with good intentions? And do they care about me? And that last one is so, it's, it can be hard to turn that light green, right? Uh, we're busy. We've got other things in our mind. Even with our kids, sometimes 
we say something, but they want to know, are you really saying this for you? Back to your point. Or is this for me? Good point. I think that's a great one to always go back to, right? Like, have I proven to the patient that I care about them as a whole person? And if not, then I need to, to go back to that. There's still something to work on, even if it's just that one little part of the model, right? So we're running out of time, but there's one more thing that I really, really want to cover because I, I run to it. I run into it a lot in my practice. And, and it's when you're giving them a diagnosis that contradicts what they thought they had. And so sometimes this doesn't happen so much from, with me, but I'll give you an example. Someone is convinced that they have chronic Lyme disease. It becomes part of their identity. I am chronic Lyme. Now, chronic Lyme is not real. It's something that unfortunately a lot of physicians, you know, give people high doses of antibiotics and it's just appealing to what the patients think they have. Oh, I've found someone who's finally listening to me. There is something called post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, which is very real. They don't have Lyme anymore, so you're not treating that. But but they come in thinking that they have this thing. For me, they come in thinking that they have post-nasal drip that's making them cough. When really, it's asthma that's making them cough. Or they come in with migraines that are making giving them sinus pressure, and they've been told over and over that they have sinus infections. So they come in thinking that their diagnosis is one thing, and I have to convince them that they're wrong, and I'm right. But here's the thing. Are they wrong? Yes, they, they are. Because the diagnosis that they've been given by someone else that they've then believed I'm right. No, Carlos, I'm right. I am right. <laughs> Let's say you spent your whole life at my school, and at my school, I taught you that circles have four equilateral sides. Okay. This is the school you went to your whole life. Then you move away from me, you go to a good school, <laughs> they teach you, no, a circle is, is a circle, right? And so were you wrong in believing that circle had four equilateral sides? No, you weren't. You weren't wrong because your whole life you have been taught by a bad teacher, right? So the patient isn't wrong. What they believe is wrong. What they were told is wrong. The last person they saw was wrong, who may have made the best choice at that time with, right? But when you start with the assumption that you, the person in front of me, who's in a weakened position relative to status again, you're wrong. I'm right. Then we're off to a bad start. The information is wrong. The diagnosis was wrong. The person you spoke to was wrong. And just by separating them from the information, you allow them the chance to consider the possibility that this is not an attack against them or it's not a correction of them as human beings, but it's a correction of information. It's a changing. It's actually a great thing. We know more now about your condition. What about that? Where we say, you know what? We have a new test. And I want to run this new test. <laughs> and I, this gives us a much better sense of what's really going on with you. And so you run the new test, you come back, right? And suddenly you go, wow, this is great. We have a much better picture, right, of what you have. To me, to say that this visit made you smarter about me, made me more right, is a lot more persuasive than, oh, I'm an idiot and I don't know what I'm doing or I believe stupid things where my emotional reaction to that is not going to be very positive. So my advice would be patient's not wrong. What they believe is wrong. What they were told is wrong. Patient is right. But you don't want to undermine also, you know, I don't want to undermine other healthcare providers that they've seen, right? That as you said, we're doing the best they could with the information they had. And I, you know, also leave room for the fact that I'm also might be wrong. I can't walk into it that way, right? 
Because we're, I have to assume that I could be wrong. I could be wrong, but we're going to work under the assumption that I'm correct until we're proven otherwise, just because that's how we, you know, arrive at diagnoses. You know, Kessler wrote a guy named Thomas Kessler wrote a book about cosmology, right? And he, they interviewed him after the book came out and he said, you know, in science, at least in cosmology, we're never more right. We're just less wrong <laughs> over time. And I thought that's such a nice attitude to have, right? We're not more right about your condition. We're just less wrong than we were. And so if you can phrase it in that way, it's a kind of humble stance, right? You, you might get a very different reaction than the one. I've had being the person who was told, no, everybody you've seen is a quack. I'm the genius that figured out what's wrong with your ear. As of this moment, you know, lucky you that you came into my room, <laughs> into my orbit. I mean, ultimately, it's not that. It's just that I see this. I see the same few things over and over. So I don't have to be good at tons of things. I just have to be good at those few that I see over and over. But but I see what you're saying. I think the way I need to spin it is with more humility, which is like, listen, the reason you're here is because you haven't been getting better. So let's try something different and see if it works. So leave the fallibility in there and the humility in there to be able to bring them more on the same level rather than leveraging the authority like we were talking about at the beginning. Right. The reversal has such a powerful effect. It's so unexpected. They expect what you just said. Instead, they get someone who says, you know what, I think we have a better picture of what's going on now. I'm really happy about that. And it's great news for you. The same information is being conveyed, the same outcome is being sought, but the persuasive formulation is uses different elements. And I think that's a much more powerful persuasion format. And because this, we, that's what we call a callback, right? We're referencing what we talked about at the beginning, which is something they use in stand-up comedy routines and a great way to end the podcast interview. So Carlos Alvarenga, thank you so much for your time. Everyone go out and check out the book, The Rules of Persuasion, How the World's Greatest Communicators Convince, Inspire, Lead, and Sometimes Deceive. Thank you, Brad. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again from Heidi. Elevate your practice with a free AI scribe, zero cost, HIPAA compliant, and time saving. Ready to swap? We've got you covered for past AI scribe expenses. Head to HeidiHealth.com, get started, and make your practice the envy of every stethoscope in town. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please, share it, or like it, or comment on a social media post, or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee, and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you, this is not a doctor-patient relationship and this is not medical advice or financial advice or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.